0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David O'Brien from Goldsmiths, the University of London. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Tim Jordan from the University of Sussex about his new book, Information Politics Liberation and Exploitation in the Digital Society. Okay, welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking with Professor Tim Jordan, who is a professor in digital culture at uh, the University of Sussex about his new book, Information Politics, um, which is published by Pluto Press. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invite. Um, It'd be good if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your academic background and the kind of things you've been working on before you came to write Information Politics to give a sense of where the book has come from.
1: Okay, I've been working in and around kind of issues of the digital and the rise of the internet from a kind of broadly cultural studies or sociological kind of background for, I guess, about 20 years or so. I arrived at my first academic job at the University of East London in 93 and was introduced to email and the idea of a paperless office, which um, most of us know means very long queues at the photocopier as people print stuff off that they're not supposed to. But I became very interested in it. Prior to that, my PhD in my previous work and then my, kind of my first academic work was around protest and social movements. So it was very much around seeing where people become active and change the world themselves kind of directly. And I suppose that was the underlying interest. And then as I started to perceive that happening on the internet in ways, I became gradually drawn further and further into it. And, you know, it's kind of fortuitous. I was just interested. I was really interested early on in seeing one of the the first major kind of grassroots or what looked like a social movement organisation from a UK perspective and, and from a US perspective was more like a civil rights kind of group. And it had been founded by three multimillionaires and someone who wrote lyrics for the Grateful Dead. And so I kind of, that seemed odd to me, but they seemed very interesting politically. It seemed like a different kind of politics. And so I've been following that for for many years since. And so I'd, since then I'd kind of initially early in that period been th- interested in issues of power and uh, in kind of what we then called cyberspace, and that word tends to, to have gone a bit. But since then I've really looked at, since doing that early on, had looked at a couple of kind of specific areas. So I'd really looked at hacktivism, the kind mm. of use of online tactics in political action, political action that's located natively in the internet, if I can use it. That word's not quite right, but but that kind of idea. And also looked at hackers a lot in the last few, you know, for over a period of time. But also looked at a range of different things in that area, but kind of more specific kind of topics than looking, trying to look more broadly. And in a way, this book then came out of a kind of interest in pulling back a little bit and trying to pull together a long set of threads. I'd done the work I'd done immediately prior to this had been an attempt to really look at the idea of communication and to really kind of revise the question about whether what hat may or may not have changed with the rise of the internet. And to look at what similarities or differences, and try and continue the kind of longer project that a lot of people in internet studies and stuff have been involved in is identifying where it's the same and where mm. it's different. And that was kind of more spec- That was kind of more detailed. Um, it was really looking at the idea of communication specifically. It was based on looking at pre-internet communication. So I found myself reading letters from the nineteenth century that were pre-telegraph and comparing that with a case study of online gaming. And having done that, while that was going on, I was kind of reading, pulling back, thinking more generally about the politics of information, really, and trying to kind of think more broadly about it and felt that it was t- there was a space and there was time to kind of start looking at a more general analysis that I could maybe provide or do. I mean,
0: obviously that um, Information Politics is the title of the book. And I wonder if you could sort of unpack it a bit and, and, and say what, what your... Um understanding of it is,
1: you know, maybe your definition and why it matters, why we need a book about it. Um, It's really pulling out because we, it's really also a kind of anti-technological determinism kind of position, which is that we talk a lot about the politics of this thing, we talk about a lot of the effects, it's very, it's kind of undeniable that these things have changed us, The, the mere fact that we're sitting here able to produce this by having a laptop open, um, suggests a whole wider raft of changes mm. and wider economic, political kinds of changes. And it's to try and situate it around the idea of information rather than situating it around kinds of technologies by starting with the internet, although the, the book is obviously clearly have The internet features massive. Yeah. hugely important player in all of this. So with, that's why I started to pick up on the idea of information. And the question I kind of started slowly to ask myself is that um, – when we look at politics, when we look at trying to look at the world, there's a kind of issue around the word politics. It comes to mean so many different things from the micro politics of conversations, all the way through to the general election of the next week, and then it's about very different things. So it's kind of politics is a quite difficult word. The politics that are important to me are the politics of exploitation, liberation. So it's a kind of coming out of the long tradition of the left, but coming out of it post the kind of changes of the 70s, 80s and 90s through new social movements, which introduced a very differentiated and varied idea of how we might approach exploitation and liberation. But it's not saying this is about understanding everything in the world. It's not a theory of kind of the reality of the world. It's a theory of how different groups of people exploit each other and then how liberation might be defined. And the question I asked myself was if we talk about the kind of classic objects of the left and much academic work, gender, race, class, sexualities, we kind of know those are divisions of exploitation and liberation, complicated ones with complex theories from multiple authors understanding, complex, detailed, empirical work. But we know certain things will show up. We know if we're looking at class issues, that issues around productivity, working time, all those things of show We know if we're looking at issues around race, that, that, that issues of visibility, um, of our biology uh, will show up. We know around women, issues of bodily rights and so sort on. Of reproductive rights will show up. And so I asked myself whether information now – so the question I was posing myself, which and my intuition from the start was that this was worth trying to kind of theorise and also then place in conversation with empirical material was that information is now one of those kinds of divisions mm. that we need to understand. And it, it's interesting how you situate it as
0: one of those divisions rather mm. than being um, – you know, a kind of a a master discourse, Mm. you know, it's located, uh, I think, in relation to other forms of struggle. Mm. And so I'm interested to know, if you could say a little bit more about the influence of new social movements, both, you know, in theory and and in practice Mm. on your interest in information
1: politics. Mm. Well, I suppose I'd situate myself in that kind of mid-late 70s uh, into the 80s kind of moments when, we inherited the, that kind of politics. We inherited the end of the 1960s kind of politics. And that seemed to me to be fundamentally about a differentiation of the field of radical politics, um, that a whole range of kind of movements that had progressed, that we'd seen kind of how far kind of radical Marxist groups, whether kind of towards Maoist or Trotskyist or whatever other flavour could take themselves, how they could have real difficulties having conversations and developing theories in relationship to the rise of second wave feminism or then the rise of LGBT politics or in relation to rise of kind of post-colonial politics or all of those things. So for me, the important thing wasn't in a sense to try and unify all of those things, it's important, very important to see connections between them, but there's not necessarily a point of unifying them because they all conceive the world slightly differently. If, on the other hand, we turn and we view the world not as a unity that we have to describe, as one unified kind of jigsaw that that we have to put the pieces together to get the true picture, but we view it as a number of different perspectives on different ways of relating things, then we have different ways of understanding So, the world without which can both grasp the specific relations each relationship of exploitation and liberation have and can put those in conversation with us so they're not disconnected. But at the same time, it doesn't involve one kind of discourse trying to be the master that unifies and brings everything together. And a number of those individual discourses have tried that at different times to say, this: we are the most fundamental form mm-hmm. of exploitation or liberation and the world needs to, we need to unify everything around yeah. that. Um, and so it's moving beyond that. In which case, you face a double problem, which is that you can't can't you. You kind of have to, at on the one hand, moves to be specific. You have to grasp the specific dynamics of whether it's gender, race, or information. You have to grasp the specific dynamics of that. So you have to kind of abstract to a certain extent. At the same time, th- those specifics are never lived and never really, um, in an everyday level, and never happen. Divorced from or separate from other forms of exploitation. So you have to then put that back in conversation and try and see the kinds of connections that there are. I've got two more
0: questions about the introduction before we get into um, Mm. the way the book is organized. And one of those is about the kind of theoretical um, basis of the book. And Deleuze is very important here. Could Mm. you say a bit about? Um, why you found his work kind of interesting and useful and, and how it relates to information politics. Well,
1: I, I think Deleuze's work is most interesting around the idea of difference and, it, and that therefore pops up both in relationship to the idea of, as I was just articulating, of a multipole kind of politics. So if we say a radical left politics addressing exploitation and liberation is a multipole politics, it's about several forms of exploitation and liberation and you therefore need ideas of difference to make that kind of work. And so you therefore also need ideas of kind of power that are kind of abstract. So you need ways of talking about relations between exploiters and the exploited that you can take across, but which don't predetermine the specifics of any one of these particular dynamics. And Deleuze, for me, Deleuze's work and perhaps Deleuze and Foucault's work around forces and power is very useful. Um, the, the, The failures of particularly Foucault's work on power are very well known, and I completely accept those, but... If you go back to Deleuze's work around the nature of forces, the ideas of active and reactive, and so on, and um, then they, I think, become very useful in that they allow you a language to define dynamics so that across different kinds of exploitation, which don't unify or subject them to the same. In a different way, Deleuze's work on difference is also very important for the idea of information that mm. the book is based on. Information is like power and like exploitation oppression, one of those words that we kind of know what it means and we use it very easily. But when you come to define it, it can be really difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I've taken – I'm not attempting to suggest that I've solved the problem of defining information, but I have suggested that there is a way of understanding and information which is used by a whole range of theories, that if we just take that forward, then it allows us to develop the kind of theory I have. And that has – two parts. And the first is that information, this is kind of derives from Bateson's work, you can take the idea all the way back at least to the 16th century um, in Wilkins' work, which is that uh, information is a difference that makes a difference. Um, It's a distinction that makes a difference, which is um, the the version that Floridi, the um, Oxford philosopher likes around information. but there's a second problem with that. And, and the way to understand that is fairly simple, that if, you know, if we make a map of something, we only put significant things on that map. You know, you only put mountains or rivers mm. on it. You don't put every blade of grass on it. There's only certain differences that need to be mm. noted on a map. So there are only certain things, bits, certain differences that are relevant information. Um, so if you take that idea, the problem there, um, the problem then is that there are massive numbers of differences in the world if we take the map idea again, then which differences, how do we decide which differences are significant ones? How do we decide this is a map that needs mountains and rivers, or this is a map that needs um, electricity stations on it, or military bases on it? So how do you decide those things? So the idea of what a difference is is always already embedded in sets of relations of differences. And so you need, um, in the way that, say, Judith Butler argues around performativity, you need to know that, when something, something is already embedded in a social logic. So the way she solves the idea of iterability and how you know what something is that is different and is important is it's part of a social logic. And you can see that through a whole range of also, again, and I try and locate it in a whole range of, of people's work from, you know, Wittgenstein through to Galloway and Thacker's work, Butler and so on. Um, you see that same idea that, it's already in a material context. It's already in a historical context. And it's that context which allows you to decide what a difference that is important is. And so information for me is a a difference that is in that context. And so whether a difference can move, whether, and by move, I mean, whether we take a difference to be significant is determined by its kind of social and material historical context. And so Deleuze is again, very important because, um, In uh, his book On Difference, he really locates a very ontological sense of difference as generative, not as a kind of lack and as a failure, but as the difference is the point which produces kind of, in his case he's talking about being, but in my case you can kind of translate that into information and meaning and so on. So Deleuze is very important in those contexts. I mean I would say in other contexts I have a lot of trouble with um, Deleuze and Guattari's work (laughs) in particular, and I find Deleuze's own philosophical work a lot more interesting and kind of powerful. Um, And I find um, the Deleuze and Guattari work has lots of powerful and interesting things and it's had huge effects Mm. across things, but I do think there's a lot of quite problematic issues in it, one of which is that it leads us away from thinking more clearly about liberation and exploitation because it entices us into a kind of multi-differentiated kind of world.
0: I mean, it's it's a difficult balance and in some ways actually
1: the structure of the book tries to
0: address that by – I think, combining questions about forms of technology, the practices, and some theoretical work as mm-hmm. well. And, and we'll come on to that. I, I think the, the other interesting thing in the introduction are the kind of the principles of information politics that you sketch out at the very end of the introduction. Mm-hmm. You, you kind of structure the um, the discussion around eight particular principles, and we don't have to deal with all eight. But I, I wonder if you could say a bit about, you know, give... The listeners a flavour of those principles and and why you thought it was important to kind of you know stick a flag in the ground at the end of an introduction and say these are the kind of the
1: core. Sure. core well, principles. Th- those principles are really in many ways meant to be a kind of summary and a kind of statement, a declaration mm-hmm. of these kind of principles. And I think um, that's very useful. That for me was useful for the kind of clarity. It was also a slight device in the context of a book that was going to travel both through very abstract theoretical Mm. and very concrete case studies to kind of start that process of iteration, so to start saying this is kind of the end point of where we're going to get to, Um, and then to allow a guidance of the reader through that, through both very abstract ideas, which we'll come to a minute, and through very concrete ones. But it does try to um, enunciate some of the basic kind of principles, so it enunciates the importance of, which I guess we'll come to talk to in a minute, It enunciates the importance of not seeing information, of seeing information's essential property to be available for simultaneous complete use. And the kind of property that information has, which is distinct from labor power or from domestic labor, um, is that it. In economic terms, it's they call it non-rival, but that actually defines it as a lack. It defines information as lacking the ability to be made rival, and therefore we get all the kind of digital rights mechanisms. Mm-hmm. But actually, information's huge power is to be available to all of us simultaneously. And so that kind of introduction, that kind of, those principles are meant to try and embed some very clear kind of political kind of principles. They're still rather abstract and need to, would need to be turned into action, but... You know that's the nature of making a kind of intellectual contribution to the debate. It then needs the work of people who do or do not take it up and enact it. And clearly draws on from things. So the idea of simultaneous complete use has a very clear relationship to the way free software has developed and the way they've developed certain licenses and certain ideas around the way information should be shared. So. sorry the book moves from principles to theory
0: and then i suppose more broadly um to two sets of practical examples one set concerned with um technological architecture and the other set concerned possibly more with with specific forms of behavior so if we could take them in turn i think theory of information power which is the first part of the book deals with recursion technology and networks. And I wonder if you could take them in turn and tell us a bit about what is recursion, um, how does technology enable and constrain information politics, um, and why are networks important?
1: Okay. Um, this is the most abstract bit of the kind of book which is meant to provide a kind of underpinning. So in some ways it identifies the possibilities for exploitation liberation rather than how they are actually produced in the world Recursion is the extraordinary ability information has to be applied to itself. Um, It's very interesting. It's well known in computer circles. It's a foundational, it's one of the foundational kind of moments of the emergence of digital computing. It's in Turing's kind of early work, Church's work um, and so on and it 's also in a number of other places, for example chomsky 's theory of language and stuff, so the idea of recursion itself isn't isn 't necessarily that new, but drawing it out and theorizing it hasn 't been done that clearly in the context in this kind of context, so the theory of recursion that 's most relevant, which is that in computing is very rather functional it 's meant to produce working machines and although it 's theorized around that it 's not developed so I wanted to pick up the idea, and, and as I looked at it, I actually kind of expected to find the idea already pre-theorized and I would just use it, and I found I needed to do more work, I needed to go further back into the work of Turing and people like that in as my lack of maths would allow me to, and, um, and find out what this idea of recursion is. And essentially recursion is the idea that you have a kind of system which processes information, which the information that it produces can then be used as input again to that system. And used as input again, it can either simply be processed again through that system or it may alter the system itself. So recursion is just that fundamental idea, but it has quite startling possibilities because of the nature of information, because information can be simultaneously used and used and used in different contexts. It has a number of consequences. But there's things we need to notice. So theorising it is important because one of the things that hasn't really been... Focused on, although it's been focused on in concrete political contexts but not in an abstract one, is that that means that information must in some ways be made standardized for whatever particular recursive system someone's involved. So if you produce a recursive system, um, you must in some way make the information such that it can be reapplied to itself. It may be muddy or dirty as the big data kind of theorists like to talk about, but it must in some way be able to be reapplied to that system. And that produces the effect that recursions um, also produce. So the second thing is recursions also produce exponential increases in in information. So if, you know, your and my age is added to a particular recursive system and then is channeled through that, it can then be added again and again as other people's added. And this can produce an, an exponential increase in amounts of information but that exponential increase is only available to and visible to the person who runs that recursive system. So whoever sees that recursive system is offered that possibility. Those of us who add the information at the start won't even see that possibility, and whether that potential exponential increase in information is realized will depend on on how that system is set up. That produces then the second knock-on effect in terms of information power is if we have that kind of a dynamic running around recursion then we also have the problem that we get in exponential increases in information and we are now in a position where i think it's fairly widely recognized i mean mark Andrejevich's book on uh, infoglut is an, an exact you know the clearest perhaps latest example but there's been quite a few of them around where we live in an age of kind of information overload mm-hmm. and the underlying dynamic for that isn't the technologies it's the way recursive systems produce these exponential increases in information now how we Normally, or most usually, deal with that is by interpolating some kind of device into that system. So, you get massive amounts of spam in your email, you involve a spam filter. That device of the spam filter, which in this case would effectively be a kind of software kind of based device, interpolates itself and then manages the system for you. We must all, you know, I think everyone's been through those processes where you get an information device, you use it, it's really great, and then you get to the point where the device itself is taking so much time Mm. to manage. Um, I have a kind of, I use Zotero quite a lot to manage links that I find on the internet, and then I find myself having to set up subfolders because I can't find, and then I find that the search doesn't work or or I interpolate a search mechanism between myself. Everyone has this. Nobody can deal with information on the internet. Google, you know, for the vast majority of people is the thing that the device we go through. So it's a well, very familiar phenomenon. But what it means is that we constantly embed devices, um, and they may be hardware, software, firmware in the middle, whatever. We constantly embed these devices in our, in relation to information power. Now, each of those devices is not neutral. It is constructed in a certain way. It will have certain cultures behind it. It will produce certain political effects, but we embed them and rely on them. So we're also involved, because of recursion, we're involved in a process of constantly adding different devices and burying them in our kind of world. The final bit of that is to think that if those kinds of dynamics are there, they're still rather incohate in Mm -hmm. that kind of theoretical sense. They're kind of dynamics, they're things that happen. How do they add up to forms, particular forms of exploitation liberation? Well, they do that because they become organised or... Disorganized in characteristic ways, and the characteristic. And this is where one of the most familiar words of the last kind of twenty years of analysing the consequences of all this information, internet stuff, is networks. Mm. Now, the key for me is not that networks aren't important. It's very clear that we have networks in our world in a way that is kind of different. That hierarchies still exist, but that networks have emerged in different ways. What is missed for me in that debate and what's really important is an idea that Alexander Galloway had um, and which I would use slightly differently, but the fundamental idea is clearly is his and really important, which is that no network exists without a protocol. So whenever we talk about networks, I think this is a key distinction that's problematic in Castells' work that he focuses so heavily on networks that he doesn't look at protocols very clearly. Protocols are in many ways the inverse or opposite of networks, and yet the two things need to work together to make sense. So you have protocols which are hierarchical, which define whether you can join the network and define what can be done on that network. Once you pass the protocol, you're on the network and it becomes completely open to you. It can be very flat. It can be very peer-to-peer to various sorts. So many of the kind of democratic or liberatory potentials of networks are actually there in the networks, but those networks are never separate from the protocols, which offer a very different kind of authority or control. Uh, they're very hierarchical. They're very um, binary. You can either get on the network or you can't. Um, and the way that is complicated is usually just by having – is usually just several protocols, each of which is binary, but have a complex product because you've had to go through several of them. And so putting that together, you then get this combination of both recursion, recursive processes which are producing information, which are producing our need and constant re- uh, embedding of devices in our world and then revision of those devices and which are organized – according to certain forms of networks and protocols are put together. And that is the kind of abstract theory of how a form of information power can emerge, which will produce characteristic forms of exploitation and liberation. You then go on to illustrate how these play out, should we say more, more
0: practically Mm. these issues of recursion technology and and network using the idea of platforms um, and you give, three chapters and three examples of clouds, issues of securitization, and then social media. And you give practical examples around things like the iCloud, Tempora, and and things like Facebook. So I wonder if you could, um, say, define platform, what are you
1: thinking of there, and then talk through those three examples. Okay. I mean, anyone who's listening will have just heard a very abstract Mm of information. And the idea was then to gradually try and make that more specific. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. and platforms are abstract architectures and information power, so when we say a cloud we don 't mean any specific cloud, we mean a particular kind of architecture, which is defined in various kind of governmental um, kind of definitions and various agencies and that they then produce an iCloud or the Amazon cloud or all these other things, or you know I run my own cloud through buying a device that I can access over the internet, but I keep the device you know it physically sits in my lounge room and so on, but myself and Anyone I give access can access it anywhere. So there's all kinds of different clouds out there. And so it's trying to look at that abstract architecture to try and make more concrete these broad ideas and did that across, as you say, those three domains. If we think about clouds, we think, you know, on the one hand, there's the kind of things you see in all the ads about them. They're flexible, they're scalable, scalable and mobile. So the aim of any cloud and you look at any of the kind of technical definitions, it's so that you can access your information, you know, from multiple places. It's flexible. If you need more information use, so you can expand it suddenly. Um, and it's, you know, so it's scalable and it's mobile. And so it has those, you know, so it has a kind of rather magical quality. But there are two other qualities that often aren't in, that I found interestingly aren't in the kind of technical definitions. Um, there's legal quality. Um, entering into a relationship with a cloud means entering into some kind of legal kind of relationship most of us are familiar with the kind of obscurantism of terms and of, terms of conditions that we all sign up to. <laughs> Those are very heavy legal documents. And if you start to pick through them, you start to find quite interesting things that companies kind of claim they control and yeah, own yeah, of yours. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not an unknown problem, but I'm putting it in the context of how. And then you also find that there's an issue of trust. If you don't trust a cloud, it makes no sense to use it. So they have to produce A sense of trust. And that's why you get this divergence with the way clouds operate, which is on the one hand, people who run the cloud um, are neck deep in material things. They're neck deep in wires and protocols and computers. And if you read the history of something like Google, which runs possibly the most massive cloud of all to back its search engine up, it was just about how could they add more and more computers early on to keep keep managing this data flow. But on the side of the user, it's magic. It's just your information there available, and it's only when it fails that the materiality emerges. And that produces a structure. Now, that I try and work through the kind of theory of information so you can see immediately that the person who runs the cloud can recurse that data. Mm -hmm. So the person, but not the people who use the cloud. So if a whole range of us use the cloud for certain things, the people who run the cloud can look at what we're doing on that cloud, can recurse that data, and can operate it. If we're going to use that cloud, we have to take up the kinds of devices. If I want to use even the cloud that I own, I have to install an app on my mobile devices. I have to reset my Java security on on the various computers that I have. I then have to go in and manage the kind of settings and so on as the owner of that particular kind of cloud. But I it's only because I own that cloud that I would have access to how users behave on it. So we have to implement these devices to manage it. And those devices are organized according to certain networks and protocols that we allow. So it's networked in the fabulous sense that I can access, I can load something up on a physical machine that sits in my lounge room and I can access it anywhere in the world if I have access to the internet. But that's because I rely on the internet protocol. It's because I'm networked and it's very flat. I'm very available. So it is very kind of powerful in that kind of sense that people often talk about. On the other hand, it's it's totally dependent on the protocols that allow me access to it. So I can reset the passwords, for example, for anybody on it, because I'm the administrator of that network. And so you can see suddenly how, so you can suddenly see how a cloud is a very interesting thing because it allows a private cloud, allows someone to recurse and all that extra information that can come from recursion will land in the lap of the person who runs the cloud. And then you can start to look at who benefits from clouds Mm -hmm. and why and what they're getting out of them. Um, and, And I suppose,
0: you know, we encounter this in much more sort of popular concerns with things like Facebook and social media where precisely the same questions come up and they manifest themselves through the sorts of advertising we see when we use Mm. these through to questions about who has control of your photographs and and that kind of thing. Yeah,
1: indeed. And that's probably the most, um, the most obvious to all of us, which is, you know, if you go on a website somewhere or if you, if you go on Facebook and, you know, like Disneyland, then the chance that ads for Disneyland will follow you for the rest, you know, for months and months afterwards (laughs) is very high. Um, And that's because the person controlling the cloud that backs Facebook, so a cloud is only partly, so, you know, social media are interesting because they embed a a particular version of a cloud, but they embed other things as well, so they're not just a cloud. Um, And they allow us, you know, and and they're not, there's often a kind of concern about our personal and private data, but to a certain extent, for people on clouds or people running social media, they don't care that much about our data. What You know, they can anonymize that. Mm. What they care about is the ability to interrelate the points of data so that they can identify that someone of a certain age, certain sex in a certain area is worth serving up certain yeah. ads for. And behind that is the kind of capitalist appropriation of information politics and power, which is that the only really effective kind of purely kind of digital and internet and information-based way in which money has been made, and which that kind of information politics has been um, capitalised, is through advertising. So the big money makers, the kind of um, that aren't selling you things. So Apple and Microsoft make lots of money, but they sell you things. They're, they're part of a large part of them is just an old-fashioned manufacturing industry. Google and Facebook, on the other hand, are advertising companies in the in the way they make money. But they're a very different kind of advertising company because it is dependent on the recursions that they can draw off from having our information on them. And so that kind of very well-known moment we all have where an ad follows us and given the way number of the ad systems work, that ad can follow you out of where you were. Mm. So particularly if you're on a system that Google follows or you're followed by Google in some way, they not only have the ads that they serve up through their search mechanism they also sell a system by which other people can embed ads in their own kind of weather, own site so that they can make money out advertising. So the ads will follow you all around the kind of world. And that really is a kind of very clear, the clearest case of the way information politics, the way recursions, devices and networks and protocols can be added up in ways that are kind of, you know, wouldn't have been able to have been done previously because of the nature of digital, the digital context now of information to produce a kind of fairly straightforward form of what would have to appear to be exploitation which is you know how much money people like um page and Brin, who run google now have and the way that money was entirely drawn off all of our information that we contributed by clicking on google
0: that that last point leads really to i think an, if not an awareness but certainly attention to moments of struggle resistance contestation which is the Um, third section of the book around battlegrounds and this i I suppose is the um the section of the book that is most grounded in in practice Um, you know the kind of debates that go on in the second section of the book around platform are still concerned with the kind of architectures underpinning people's practices but in the last section of the book you're you're thinking about ipads which you know have material reality people interact with you know they're familiar with them um, online gaming um, and then the kind of uh, political or BP political mm. activism around hacktivist um, practices um, and things like the Arab Spring. Mm. Um, so I wonder if you could say how these maybe more practical examples relate to the broader story of the book and, and, and where I suppose these moments of exploitation and liberation might occur with an iPad or with mm. World of Warcraft or yeah.
1: And so I wanted to see these connections to other kinds of politics. And so I looked at three case studies, and as you said, one is of the iPad, one is of a specific moment in online gaming, and one is I wanted to look at a kind of active resistance group, a group that was actively using information politics. And whereas lots of the previous examples have been of, you know, the big giants of the internet kind of an information world, I wanted to look at how people react because people are very active in these kinds of worlds. Um, the iPad allowed me to really start with design of a specific digital object. So to look at it and to look at the kinds of technologies that had to be produced, the kind of the way the iPad, when they first conceived it, couldn't be produced because they didn't have a glass that was strong enough to manage that bigger screen. But the way a number of the ideas from that then went into the iPhone and the iPod, and the way those ecologies then turned back, so I started with design of the iP- iPad. And it's tremendous success and then started to ask questions. So if it's designed this way, we can then start asking. And then if you look at how successful you say, well, someone makes it. It's a material. It's an object. You know, people buy it, make it. What happens there? And so I looked at both the ecological and the kind of class-based aspects, which a number of people have have also looked at. The ecological aspects, you know, Apple have been criticised for a long time for their environmental credentials. It was notable in the iPad launch which um, that Steve Jobs touted its environmental credentials. And they had made some changes there, but they are still making design changes which create forms of pollution. For example, the size of it requires, it's believed that the size of the thinness of the an iPad and some of the other devices requires certain bits to be soldered on, which means you can't recycle them. And that. That creates effects. So look at those. But the underlying key ecological problem is that there's only a slight dip in the purchases of laptops and desktops with the rise of tablets. And if you were to add then the rise of smartphones, you suddenly see that the kind of exploitation of nature to produce these devices must have massively increased with the rise of different devices. And the idea that we, you know, we all now have multiple devices, um, now produces a kind of major ecological problem. So you can start seeing the information politics of this, the processing of information, Apple's production of a huge kind of ecology to try and draw people in to have different devices, which allows them to then control the flows of information. So we're back to recursion and devices and things. But that produces a kind of strong connection to environmental movement. Uh, the wonderful work of the people who've Um, examined and researched the Foxconn factories in China is a really huge kind of reference point for me then to start looking at how do you produce these devices at these kind of prices? How does it connect to to kind of globalised capitalism? What is done to these kind of people? Um, What kind of pressures are they put under? Um, And that then produces, you know, a very strong connection to what you know, is a kind of hyper exploitation of certain forms of labor, um, particularly in China, but also kind of in other parts of the world. So it allows a very strong connection between the nature of this object and class politics. And finally, I was able to try and bring that back to information politics by looking at, you know, how those, all those politics together around flowing around and through the iPad, all of which you need, then need to, you know, we then need to see the iPad as part of other changes, which, um, Co- other colleagues have been starting to look at in the relationship of the notion of being after the desktop, which was originally a way of exploring how we look at how the interface on our laptops, which was originally, if you look at your files, they often um, have been conceived in relationship with the idea of an office desk with files and so on, and um, as if you have little filing cabinets, as a way of conceptualising it for people to use it. Well, whether we're now with apps and so on beyond that kind of a metaphor and we're interf- interfacing in a different way with these kind of devices. But it's also after the desktop in that it plays into changes in the relationships between work, play and leisure, which have been kind of, which were struggled over in the 19th and early 20th century to try and establish, so that we have the constant complaint about how you're never disconnected from your email. um, And there's flexibility out of that, but there's also the fact that you can go on holidays and still be doing your email and still be kind of connected to work. So these boundaries, and tablets are a huge component of that because they allow flexibility they allow you know blackberries were a huge shift in that because they allowed people to use email a bit more easily um, but now tablets because they're slightly bigger allow management of those kind of work processes of documents for example it would have been harder to manage on a phone to manage those so it then circles back to informational changes and processes that kind of draw all of those kinds of things together and that kind of Connection between different politics and seeing where information politics provides certain impetus. So, the politics of information of producing devices that contribute to a particular information ecology, i.e., Apple's in this example, has certain strong effects in class base because they have to produce them at certain price levels and to certain standards to get people involved, and that means exploiting, you know, the working class and the people of the world. And the other two case studies, to a certain extent, try to map in different ways a similar kind of story.
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd be just if you give a, a brief overview of um, the hacktivism case study because mm. obviously that um, is something that maybe is connected to more traditional forms of politics. Really, mm. kind of obviously, um, mm. and almost doesn't need a series of um, kind of engagements that explain the politics of exploitation of. Via mm. Foxconn's workers and stuff mm.
1: like this. Yeah, well, it was. It's important to see that where. We- there's always a tendency when one is looking at forms of power and these big exploitation to feel slightly subjected to them, to kind of feel. So it's always important to see where people, that in these contexts, people are constantly active. Mm -hmm. Um, I've researched hacktivism for some time. Myself and Paul Taylor did um, some work on it in the early 2000s in the book, 2004, that really, I would now say, looked at the kind of first generation of hacktivism. And this uh, kind of case study is is partly to update it, a lot of the main work in this has been done by other people, particularly Gabriella Coleman's book on Anonymous so yeah. is really, is is very good for tracking and tracing this kind of shift. Um, but for me it was about seeing the relations and seeing about how different kinds of grassroots politics can emerge and can also use forms of information politics to um, to struggle back in many ways. One of the most interesting examples for me was Anonymous' Operation Tunisia. Um, because it involved some of the standard newer tactics, which hadn't really um, been in the first generation of activism, and one of those is clearly the hacker, the leak as a hack. So people were hacking into things and leaking. And in this context, what Anonymous were doing was making sure that, particularly the people in Tunisia, could retain access to the WikiLeaks files, which was the big State Department cables dump that WikiLeaks released, which allowed people to read what state department officials from the United States were saying about their country. And in many countries they were detailing the, you know, corruption that was going on at higher levels um, and reporting back on it. So there's that kind of new tactic. They were also, however, kind of reusing information politics. So so they were providing new bits of devices. So where – Um, The Tunisian government, it became very clear, had infiltrated lots of activists' Facebook pages and was using various forms of hacking to try and break into and control. They were arresting people. They were changing people's Facebook pages and so on. Um, They were preventing access outside of Tunisian... Anonymous provided what they called digital care packages, which were basically small scripts that you could run in your browser and so on to reverse that effect. So there were very informational kind of struggles going on, which then allowed them to produce a device which struggled back against the devices. So if the state in Tunisia at one point was inserting devices into this, into people's computers, which allowed them then to draw off the information about who's an activist or not. Then the counter device was being placed in the context. Now, for lots of activists, they'll have had to have trusted the device that they were given, and that 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 they worked, which they did, because not necessarily all activists are going to be able to read code and Mm -hmm. understand what it does. Um, But at the same time, it was very clear that Anonymous was producing a very, and, and that's both an extension and a continuation of the tradition of hacktivists, which has been to try and rebuild the internet as a secure infrastructure for an information world in which we all have free, safe access to all the information available. And that then draws in the connection to the politics around free software, and it also draws in the connection to the politics of that was largely around human rights activists in the first generation of activists, where they were building things. And it's out of that politics that one of the most enduring kind of um, and contested bits of kind of resistant information politics, which is Tor or the Onion Router has emerged in that kind of context of people trying to use the existing infrastructure, but to shift it in ways which allow a kind of grassroots information politics, which allow us all secure access to information, and therefore allow us through the kind of devices we use to start using the possibilities of information being available to all of us. And that recursed information could be returned to all of us. It doesn't have to be privatized. The people who control whatever recursion can be returned to all users. Those kind of possibilities start to emerge. That's a, that's a really interesting point to conclude on, actually, because I think we
0: can see there the, the sort of the strong sense of possibility that you try and put forward in the book. That this is not a story of a kind of uh, a tale of domination mm. and um, pessimism, although there are important moments of pessimism. Mm. Uh, to be had uh, particularly in your practical examples but actually there's there are ways of taking control um, of our devices of our architectures of the act of recursion that might make us citizens rather than Mm. subjects and i'm interested in sort of where you go next after the book are you because you talked about how it was you know in a tradition that you've been working around Mm. social movements and Mm. kind of broader. Uh, mm-hmm. questions of digital. So are you doing similar things? Are you doing something completely different?
1: I'm probably I'm doing both. I mean, you know, we have professional lives as well as kind of vocational as academics, and one needs to to um, continue in uh, On the, So there's really two things I'm currently doing, and um, uh, as with all kind of – I would hope with all research and academic work, it leads to unexpected places, mm-hmm. so I'm not quite sure where we'll end up. The familiar work is that I've also been – I had been teaching a course and this had gradually turned into a a, um, longer-term interest in the idea of digital industries, which is – comes from a question that um, one of my seminars used to be based on, which is um, are Apple and Microsoft digital industries um, or are they all – you know, the implication being they're old-fashioned. And if we say they aren't, what are they? And if Google and Facebook are what does that mean? Now, that's not a kind of sectoral question. It's a question to try and get at the dynamics of these kind of things. And some of those dynamics are now there in my kind of analysis of information politics. But one of the interesting things for me might be to extend that a bit further and start really looking at that in a kind of more empirical way. Mm-hmm. And therefore, to use that question um, what is a digital industry to unpack the major power, the major kind of exploiters in our digital environments. The issue that comes out of that, which I, I mention in this book, which I don't talk a lot about, is the issue around um, voluntary labour. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, the, yeah. It's, it's a very familiar issue a lot of people talk about, it, but there is, remains a lack of clarity as far as I'm concerned in because we can all see how voluntary labour is both exploitation, but we can all see, and if you look at all the empirical work on it, people, know, first of all, know that. Yeah, yeah. People, uh, and secondly, they will often continue doing it. One of the most striking examples for me was the work that um, John Banks did around a particular game in which people were able to write modifications. The game then sacked its art department and outsourced that to the people writing, um, who were happily writing this as ho- these modifications yeah. as hobbies. The reaction then was that some people took it up as a, almost a career, some people did it as a sideline, and some people continued to write their modifications and refused payment because it was fun. And across that spectrum you get the really interesting kind of complexity of how voluntary labour is both fun and leisure and can be exploited and what we do with that. So I've been playing around with that. I'm not quite sure where that will go because as I work through some of these questions are just ways of restating things in this kind of book. So it may well be a bit of an echo rather than a kind of new development. On another completely kind of separate track, I'm I have been working the last few years in a research network around the idea of being in the zone. So that kind of experience that people have where, um, which is essentially um, only really analysed in psychological kind of terms and by kind of, you know, sports therapists and people like that. There's no real, we haven't really found a kind of cultural, sociological and political analysis of this kind of experience. And so I've been working with a network which includes people who are working on music, sport and kind of cultural labour of different kinds. And I'm hoping that we, that network's been running for a couple of years and I'm hoping we'll have a collected additional book out about that in the next year or so. And my kind of contribution has really been to pick up a kind of side on my work, which has been trying to theorise some of these things, particularly inspired by Donna Haraway's last book and work around the ideas of where boundaries are and so on. And um, I've been looking at both surfing and computer programmers, both of whom report very similar kinds of experiences. It's another one of those things that if people know what I mean by being in the zone, then kind of everyone knows what it means. But if you try and theorise or understand it outside of individualised psychological Mm -hmm. terms, and it clearly is outside individualised psychological terms, then it's very um, unworked over at the moment. And it's very important, particularly in cultural labour contexts where that experience is often a way of drawing people into forms of self-exploitation because that experience of working in a kind of creative team that's on a project that's about to change the world in which you have these wonderful experiences of work is the way that, you know, we, you know, all the work on culture and creative industries can see creative labour producing both precarious conditions that people put up with and producing the commitment to overwork compared to how much they're being paid out of certain things. And so it's very interesting in that context as well. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory,
0: where we were discussing Professor Tim Jordan's new book, Information Politics, Liberation and Exploitation in the Digital Society.